Welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 11 of the Center of Everywhere, a podcast created by the Center for Rural Policy and Development. I'm Kelly Ash, Research Associate for the Center. There's been a lot of discussion around housing shortages in rural Minnesota. This conversation has really uh, been increasing at the state legislature. And a lot of it, a lot of the solutions that legislators talk about is how do we create more housing? Um, and on the surface, this makes sense. If we were to take a look at a normal kind of healthy rural housing life cycle, what you might see is a step through a person's life. There's all these moments in which somebody might sell their house and move into another. So, for example, you graduate college, you move, you might buy a house or you might rent your first, you know, through your 20s. You reach the age of 30, you're feeling more financially stable. You might buy your first house that might be more of a starter house or it might be a two bedroom kind of family style house. You get promoted at the age of 35 or 40. You're doing great at work. You might upgrade, get something bigger, something nicer. Your kids graduate from high school. You might move again and say, you know what? I don't need all this space. I'm going to downsize a little bit. You're reaching retirement and all of a sudden you don't need that either. You don't want that second floor. You might want just one floor. And so you move again, you sell your, your house and you move into something more appropriate and so on and so forth. At each stage of these, we see this kind of what we would call churn of housing. You're selling a house and moving into another. This all then depends on having those that type of housing available. And so when policymakers are talking about housing shortages and how to solve this issue, it usually revolves around the idea of how do we supply more of it? And it could be anything from what might be called workforce housing to having more transitional housing uh, for a person that is older, but not necessarily needing assisted living or anything like that. This all really does make sense. It's quite rational. But it also depends on having demand for that type of housing. And somebody needs to make a decision, they may say, yeah, I would love to live in a patio style transitional home, you know, easy maintenance to take care of, as long as it's financially makes sense for that decision to be made. The Center for Rural Policy and Development just released a report this week, why grandma may stay at home, property taxes and home ownership in rural Minnesota, and analyze these three key pieces that shape the financial situation differently in a rural area versus a metro. These three pieces are the amount of annual property taxes that rural homeowners might pay, the likelihood that homeowners don't have a mortgage anymore on their home, that their mortgage has been paid off, and the third piece being utilities, utility rates and which the cost, really just shaping this overall context of what does it cost to be a homeowner in a rural area? And what does that mean then somebody wants to purchase a brand new home that may be uh, more transitional type housing? With us today is actually the researcher and author of this report, Phil Jensen, who's a freelance data analyst and technical writer. Uh, he's a former professor and college administrator, was in a PhD in molecular biology and has written a lot of data-driven reports on topics including education, molecular biology, taxation, and college athletics. Uh, born and raised in Minnesota and lives with his wife and son in Duluth. And Phil, you, you, uh, you contacted us last summer saying, hey, I'm hanging out. I got some capacity here. I'd love to volunteer some of my time to kind of take some look at some data and some research that you guys are interested in, but maybe don't have the capacity to do it. I know we really appreciated your time. 
we're loving this report. Um, uh, welcome, Phil. Really appreciate you taking the time to kind of chat with us today on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've never given a podcast uh, before. And frankly, I think I've listened to about five and they're all from CRPD. So I hope this goes all right. Thanks. Yeah. So, Phil, I guess the first question a lot of people might have, PhD, molecular biology, professor administrator, haven't really touched policy data research or housing. Tell us how you thought, you know, coming to this topic, uh, maybe somewhat relates to the skill set that you have. Yeah, at some level, uh, it sounds kind of odd to say, but data are just data, right? So uh, whether they're about fruit fly genetics, which I've worked on, or uh, education policy, uh, which I've published on, or college hockey, I've written some data-driven stuff. You know, I'm a Minnesotan, so that seems kind of natural. It's all it's all just data. And so when I uh, learned about the center, I I looked at some of the stuff I thought it was really exciting and not to flatter you, but I kind of got excited about how I could fit into that system. So I was so excited that I decided to volunteer a little bit and uh, thanks for giving me an outlet to, to do some work. So some of the stuff that we found right away seemed to kind of jump off the page and I'm, I'm glad I worked for you guys too. So I guess talking about the report um, for our uh, listening audience, just so you all know, it's a very data-driven report. Um, we didn't do any interviews or anything like that. It was really just looking at the basic financial situation that a rural homeowner might be facing that's different than a metro-based uh, homeowner and what that might seem or what that might mean in terms of churn, why somebody might want to move or not move out of their home into something else. I know the first thing that you kind of looked at was looking at property taxes own. What are the differences? That's kind of an interesting topic because that, you know, across not only housing, but I think state policymakers are always kind of interested in the whole property tax situation because it funds a lot of different things in our rural areas. And there's always this argument at state legislature, you know, about who's paying more property taxes. But uh, through the lens of looking at it from incentivizing home ownership and why somebody might not want to leave their single family home, even if, you know, it's just one or two people living in it. What did you find, Phil? Yeah, it all stems from uh, or my process, I guess, started from the CRPD report a couple of years ago about housing churn. And that was, uh, there were some quantitative elements to that, but that was largely qualitative. And so I thought maybe we could put some numbers to uh, kind of the economic reality that people might be facing when they're making decisions about whether to transition to, for example, like you mentioned, a patio style transitional senior housing. So uh, we, decided to, or I decided to look at a few kind of concrete metrics that seem to be inarguable just to kind of get a sketch of the landscape of how uh, different the, the economics of housing might be across Minnesota's 87 counties. So we looked at the different 80, the 87 counties across the state, and we just looked at a few simple metrics. One of them is, is of course, population. And uh, in, in addition to population, whether the county is in a metro area as determined by the census. So for example, uh, we typically think of the metro area as the seven county metro, of course, and uh, perhaps St. Louis and Stearns Benton and maybe Olmsted. But you know, the metro areas are a little bit bigger than that. So for example, Carleton County, we typically don't think of Carleton County, Cloquet, Carleton Renshaw being particularly metro, but they're technically in the Duluth metro area. So we use that distinction just as kind of a catch-all for metro generally. Uh, so when we did that, first thing we did is we looked at the effective property tax rate 
uh, and that that's an important distinction to make. We looked at the rate, the uh, the rate of taxation by percentage, uh, as determined by the estimated market value, et cetera. Um, and when we looked at that, the first thing we found that kind of jumped off the page was that uh, non-metro counties have lower effective tax rates than metro counties, and that caught our attention because. Uh, while it probably makes some sort of deep sense, it, it isn't immediately intuitive that the rate of property taxation would be lower in a non-metro county. If anything, one could easily construct a story where it would be intuitive that non-metro, more rural counties would have to pay a higher rate to uh, get the same kind of critical mass of revenue that they would need from a smaller tax base. So that was the first uh, step, just looking at the two pools separately. Yeah, and I think just for our listeners too, I, we found that surprising because I feel like a lot of folks, well, when we look at research in rural areas in general, it's typically a, a, a economies of scale issue, right? Like you don't have the economies of scale, so property taxes, the rate has to be higher in order to try and provide the services that are expected of our county, but uh, of our counties or schools or anything to be at a certain level that is uh, equitable across the entire state of Minnesota. And so, yeah, that was a little surprising that they're, they're, they're lower. Yeah, so the first pool uh, that we looked at was that Metro pool and it's 27 counties ultimately, I think, uh, in the state versus the other 60, we saw that difference. So the next question we asked was, well, there's a lot going into that, obviously. Uh, you might pay different rates because the magnitude or the, the absolute values of the services are different. So we wanted to control for whether there was this quote unquote metro effect, whether you're really paying more in metro areas uh, because you're a metro area or whether that's just because you have more people living in your area, right? So we just wanted to do a simple regression, multiple linear regression and pulled that out. Uh, so we controlled statistically for population and we said, even though these places have more people, is there still a metro effect? Are metro counties, for how big they are, still having higher property tax rates than non-metro counties? And the answer is yes. The, even when you control for population size, uh, you, you see this, this trend. So uh, when we control for the other way, or when we control for both variables, uh, actually population itself doesn't really play much of a role in predicting effective tax rate at all. It's really just, there's kind of a pool, a flat line among all metro county or all non-metro counties who pay a very similar effective tax rate, kind of an aggregate. And then uh, metro counties pay a higher tax rate, kind of an aggregate. And within each group, that line is flat with regard to population. Within each group, non-metro counties, as your population gets bigger, your tax rate doesn't really go up. And within the metro counties, as your population goes up, your tax rate doesn't really go up any more than it already is. So it's just kind of a two-step system instead of a big trend that we would see throughout the state. So that was kind of the next step to see if we were dealing with a metro effect or a population effect in as much as we can separate them statistically. So I, the next step I know you took then was looking at, we know the tax rates are very similar but, uh, amongst the metro counties and very similar amongst the non-metro counties, um, not related to population, which is interesting. But then when we look at housing values, that's when we started to see some pretty significant relationships. Is that correct? 
Yeah, the, uh, the next obvious thing, right? Kelly and I are talking as we go through the, the process here and you're getting all of this in whatever, 45 or 50 minutes. And you know it took a lot longer than that to put together. And clearly the next step is, well, you don't need to pay as much of a rate on your home because your home is worth more in a more metropolitan area. So we tried to control for median home value as well. So we got those data from the state and then we did a, uh, it probably is worth mentioning that obviously median home value is directly related to both population and metro status. So that's in the report just kind of as a control, right? To make sure that we're seeing the effects we wanna see. But then we tried to model or tried to estimate what would be a typical property tax burden for uh, a home in each of the 87 counties, like a typical home. So the way we did that is we took each of the 87 counties effective tax rate, and we took each of the 87 counties median home value, and we said, this is gonna be our quote unquote typical tax burden, not a rate by percentage, but the number of dollars paid uh, in a typical or median-ish household uh, in each of the counties. And so when we did that, we took that kind of typical burden or typical number of dollars paid. And we again said, does this number go up and down, up or down when we control for uh, county population or the metro effect? And so we, we saw that it did uh, go up, the burden went up. A lot of that is due to the housing price, of course, but something interesting happened when we did that. Yes, because of the housing price, the rate, the, excuse me, the burden went up People live in more expensive homes in metro areas, so their burden goes up. But the tax rate was impacted more by metro status and population or metro status than the home values were. And so uh, just to say that again in a slightly different way, yeah, in a metro area, you're paying a higher burden and you have a more valuable home, but the metro status uh, affected your rate more than it affected your home value. And so it, when you tease all that apart, it, uh, yeah, property values explain some of the increased tax burden, but it doesn't explain away the effect that we were seeing. In fact, the tax rate seems to go up uh, higher than you'd expect if it were merely an effective home value. So that, that, uh, when we saw that, we knew we were uh, onto something, that there was something about this metro effect in property taxation uh, on a bigger scale. So in layman's terms, Phil, I'm gonna try and repeat this back to you and you can tell me if I'm incorrect, but essentially what that data analysis shows or uh, kind of lays out is this idea that, let, let's say I'm a retiree I want to downsize, want something kind of low maintenance, that kind of transitional patio style home. But I live in a rural area, but let's say I'm adjacent to a more metropolitan area. And we see this typically is that a lot of the metropolitan areas are the ones where a lot of the housing developments happening, particularly these patio style homes. And if that's my, my availability is like, all right, I want to move to that type of home, but I'm going to have to go to this metropolitan area to purchase it and, and, and live there. I would be looking at a pretty significant increase in property ta annual property taxes owed going from where I am now to something else. Is that essentially what this data kind of tells us? 
I think there are a lot of ways to slice it. Uh, I'll just jump in with an asterisk here that I, I know you're thinking the same thing, which is obviously we're speaking at a kind of broad brush level. And there are very smart people who are experts in the field and know that there are about 300 flavors of nuance going on here. So we, I understand that that is happening. But just from a very broad level, looking at the broad numbers, it is kind of like what you're saying. Another way of saying it would be if you're living in a town or a smallish town, of size X, let's say 10,000 people. And that, si that town of 10,000 people is on the edge of a metropolitan area or is in a metropolitan area. You are gonna be apparently uh, on average, you're paying a higher property tax burden than a town of 10,000 people in a non-metro area would be. So when we start making policy prescriptions, we're gonna talk more about other layers to this onion, but the first brush is the first Blush, uh, look is that if you are in the same size city, you are already paying a different amount of property tax if you are in a more rural area versus whether you're in a more metro area. And so it almost seems as if it is incentivizing living in your home or staying in your home that you might own, for example, which we'll talk about later, uh, in a smaller community because it's cheaper to live there because the property taxes are less. And so uh, that's, I think that's a corollary of what you're saying, is that there's such heterogeneity in the system based on geography. And when we talk about housing, we talk about it as if it's with a capital H. And maybe we have flavors of like, you know, big multifamily housing in a metro area and elsewhere. But this shows that it's kind of a, that there's a, another layer of complexity to our understanding of housing and the incentives that people can have for staying there. Property taxes is just a big piece of the financial incentive to staying in your home and that financial financial incentive seems to align with staying in your home in a rural area. Phil, I know we talked about this early at the beginning of the research is this idea of a lot of the policy solutions being, if we build it, they will come, right? And what this report is kind of assessing that assumption, that belief, is that really true? Is there just that much demand? There's nothing standing in the way of demand other than is the how that type of housing available or not? Now we're not. Uh, so this report kind of says, you know, availability is obviously an issue, but it it isn't the full story. And I know one of the other pieces we talked about was the percentage of folks that outright own their home already, right? So we're a little bit older. They got their house thirty years ago for fifty thousand dollars. They've had the mortgage paid off for ten years now, fifteen years, maybe longer. I remember, still remember growing up in Hancock when my mom and dad, I was in elementary school or maybe junior high, I can't quite remember. And I'll always remember the day we celebrated because it was my father's last payment on the house, you know? And I just remember sitting there and be like, well, I don't, I don't know what the big deal is. But now thinking back, I'm like, God, that is a huge deal. That last payment. Um, I can't imagine that. I just bought my house a few years ago and I'm like, oh man, that's so long down the road. Um, but, you know, he was still 15 years from retirement. He had already owned the home. He, that mortgage payment was gone off the books. And there are a lot of rural folks that are like that. Um, with the baby boomer generation retiring out, a lot of them have a lot of assets. Um, so you took a look at that. And, and what did you find, Phil? Yeah, we, we kind of wanted to do a double check to make sure that we were uh, not barking up the wrong tree regarding what you just said. And so we did find that home ownership is, 
there's a higher rate of home ownership among households in rural counties in Minnesota than in metro counties in Minnesota. And that difference not only scales with the metro non-metro difference, but it scales with population. So there are a few qualifiers here. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why this can happen. And they're all consistent, I think, with the finding, but we should just probably say them out loud. One, the median age in a rural area is typically higher. And so people have just had a longer time to pay off their home, They're just in absolute terms. So that's kind of an obvious one. But another one is, another obvious one is the housing is just cheaper. So if the salaries or the cost of living, other factors don't scale perfectly, uh, you might be a little bit more likely to be able to afford to pay off your home right away than uh, in, a, in a rural area than you would be in a metro area, just because that principle is lower from the beginning. Tie into what we just talked about, that you have more money to put toward principle, for example, every month because you're paying less in property tax on the amount that you owe. So now it's all starting to compound a little bit where you're paying a lower rate on a lower priced home. And so now you have all of this, I'm not saying extra liquidity, but you, it, you're not nearly as uh, into it for not only the higher home value, but also the higher tax rate on that home value. So we're starting to see a compounding effect, maybe. Uh, there are other issues, of course, stability, uh, size of home differs in a rural versus a metro area. So the price per square foot might even be similar, uh, but typically it's not because the houses are older and a new build, uh, the construction costs, et cetera, uh, have scaled it all. So there are a lot of factors going into that number, uh, but yeah, we're seeing that, uh, home ownership rates go up in a couple of ways uh, in rural areas. And I'll say a couple of ways this way. Home ownership rates are higher in terms of households generally, regardless if they rent or own. So just as of the pool of home of households, excuse me, of the pool of households generally, a higher percentage of them own their homes outright without a mortgage, uh, according to the American Community Survey, in rural areas than not. And that scales not only with this metro effect, metro versus not, like a two-step thing, but it also scales with population. The smaller your, the population of your county, the more likely your county is to have a higher rate of home ownership. So that is a not only a two-step thing, metro, non-metro, but it's a like a trend generally across the 87 counties. But that number of home ownership is also higher in rural areas just among people who own at all, as opposed to rent. So just as a percentage of owners, you have a higher percentage of people owning outright in rural areas, uh, probably because of the factors that we talked about before. So that's not an artifact of a higher percentage of kids renting, for example, like in college towns or in metro areas or the kind of churn that we see in a kind of tenant market, uh, for example, in a metro area. That that's It's separate from that. Just among people who own the home, the outright ownership rate is higher in rural areas. And so we just wanted to make sure that we were not looking at an artifact of something in that respect. Yeah, it, it seems that uh, that home ownership rate, that's a really strong trend, actually. The, the, num the number itself uh, falls by about half from the least populated counties to the most populated counties from about a 60% uh, rate of all home owners own outright in the smallest counties compared to about a 30% rate uh, in the largest counties uh, among people who own. So it's real and uh, it probably plays into some of the policy effects that you mentioned earlier.
Yeah. And again, to kind of put that situation in cont or in context or maybe on the ground a little bit is, you know, again, if I'm somebody at retirement, I own my home outright and I want to move to a transitional home, not even a metro, let's say it's in my own town. To build that transitional home or that patio style uh, type living is quite a bit more than it used to be 30, 40 years ago. But the value of that I can get for selling my house, so I'm in a single family home, great for what we would consider like workforce housing, kind of starter home, you know, those older homes, they may need a little work, but you can get it for $125,000, $160,000 in that perfect range for a lot of younger families in a rural area. But yet, to go into that transitional home, it's going to be over $200,000 guaranteed, two twenty-five maybe. The This then is a kind of another sort of barrier in that decision-making for me who is going to have to sit and wonder, one, am I willing to pay the, the higher property tax on that house because it's going to be valued higher? And two, am I willing to take out a mortgage at my age? since I won't be able to sell my house to cover the cost of moving into this new house. You might see that a lot more in a metro area where you could sell your single family home for probably pretty close, if not more, than what you want to purchase in the transitional home. And I think that's kind of like an interesting difference and nuance when looking at the idea of demand for these types of housing in a rural area. Do you think that's a pretty good explanation of what they might, what some rural households might be facing in this decision? Yeah, we see a lot of these factors coalescing. Uh, we'll use just Highway 53 in Duluth as an example, right? So the situation in Duluth, where housing prices are going through the roof right now, for a variety of factor reasons, right? That's it's not a surprise, but it's different than up the road in 53 uh, in Virginia, I'm sure, and I'm sure it's different than farther past Virginia up in Orr. And I'm from a town of 700 people, right? So I understand the realities and how different they are, or at least kind of do. And so when we have this conversation about all of these factors coming together, consider this, right? So if you are in Duluth and you are less likely to own your home, so you're already you're more likely to be paying a mortgage, which probably resembles the rent you might pay in transitional housing or a mortgage payment that you might undertake if you were to just move and try to own that uh, in Duluth itself, your property taxes are gonna be higher too. You talk about that versus or, right? Where new build uh, transitional housing for seniors in a small town, in a small rural town, uh, does not scale necessarily with typical real estate values because the only thing that's really different is the plot of land that you're buying. And so the construction costs, for example, are relatively flat compared to the land itself. And so you're not going to get uh, a linear scaling uh, that you'd expect for a new home price uh, mortgage or rent uh, in a small town that, that you would in kind of a regional hub like Duluth. So if you're in Orr or Black Duck or uh, somewhere, uh, or my hometown in Marshall County, you're gonna be looking at this very differently because immediately any new build in your community is going to be more expensive than any payment you have, even if you have a mortgage, just because of the way construction costs have gone. In addition to that, you are more likely to own your home outright already if you're in a smaller area, in no small part because it was cheaper and easier to pay off. So now you've disincentivized it two ways. Uh, 
not only is it more expensive than you're used to compared to this, but now you're more likely to own it outright and you haven't been paying anything monthly for years in terms of a mortgage or rent. So that contrast gets bigger. Then we talk, then we tack on the property tax piece that we already said. So now in addition to that change and the fact that you weren't paying a mortgage more likely, now the property taxation that you've been paying uh, is a lot lower than you would have been in Duluth. So if you're in Duluth, well, I'm already paying a mortgage and it's probably more comparable to what my home value is right now. And uh, property taxes, I may even catch a break if I'm renting or it shouldn't be as bad as it would be otherwise, coupled into what you mentioned, which is I can get a lot for selling my house. Whereas all four of those factors are coalescing in the opposite direction in a rural area. So you talk about build it and you will come. I think it's that housing with a capital H again, build what? You know, if, if the plan is to churn people out of their homes, not in a coercive way, but just to incentivize them to move to traditional housing and free up their single family home that you would think of as like young family starter, uh, single family housing, the incentives might be a lot different. And if even if people are making data-driven decisions, those data might've been collected in an area that's far different in an economic reality sense uh, than where they might be trying to build it in a rural area. So even if we were to subsidize some of the uh, construction of, for example, senior transitional housing in rural areas to make it uh, better aligned with the market. Even if the overall sticker price of that move was more palatable for uh, seniors in rural areas, for example, there are these other factors that aren't weighed into that analysis where you still might not get a lot of people pulling the trigger. Well, I know one argument some people have brought up, and you looked into this, was that, okay, these things are true in a rural area, but isn't it also true that utility rates are significantly higher in rural areas? And does that then counter, uh, counteract all of these ways in which it's cheaper to have a home in a rural area? Phil, what did right. you find cost, there? Yeah, cost of living in general uh, is obviously, obviously scales differently in different parts of the country. Fuel, just for transportation is different, uh, obviously. But things like, you know, electric co-ops, often rural co-ops have different rates than uh, municipalities do or bigger systems do. Uh, other kinds of fuels, for example, a lot of places in rural areas are on propane, which is more expensive per BTU than natural gas, obviously. So yeah, there are a lot of factors in that. So we looked into, after discussions kind of like this one, except not recorded, we looked into why, uh, you know, what other factors might be pushing the needle the other direction to to make this less of a clear cut thing. So when you look at what are called selected monthly ownership costs, SMOCs in the American Community Survey, they include things like utilities, fuels, insurances, fees, likelihood of paying fees, I think, uh, for example, with HOAs or other uh, kind of community-based things. And what we found was well, importantly, those SMOCs, as reported by the American Community Survey, they include property taxation, real estate taxes, they're called, which include property tax and the main driver. There are others too. But uh, in general, property taxes rolled into that. So when you look at these SMOCs or these other selected monthly ownership costs across the spectrum of the 87 counties in terms of population, you see that, like we said before, the costs go up these other ownership costs go up uh, 
separate from the mortgage itself, the more population your county has. So the more densely populated or the higher population, you pay more on these other costs. But what we did was we took the yearly typical tax burden that we calculated earlier, we divided it by 12 because there's selected monthly ownership costs. And we then said, if we were to subtract that as a monthly rate away from these other ownership costs relayed by the American Community Survey, we should have an estimate, an estimate of these other costs like utilities and fuels and insurances and fees. And so when we did that, we found that there indeed, well, it kind of gets tricky because the associations become so weak. But overall, there are, uh, when we take out the property taxation bit, the trend is that the higher the population gets, the lower your costs. But that association is quite weak to the tune of, uh, I don't know, let's say $30 a month across the entire spectrum of the 87 counties in Minnesota. And so that's a relatively small effect. And also it's not particularly robust. That effect is present in non-metro counties, uh, the more rural areas, the more, the smaller your county, typically the more your other costs are, maybe because you're more distant from a grid of some kind or more distant from a natural gas network, et cetera. But the association goes away in the metro counties. And the metro trend and the non-metro trend aren't actually st statistically significantly different from each other. They're just uh, kind of weakly. Uh, it's just that the non-metro counties have this weak effect and there's nothing really in the metro effect. And so then there's just kind of this very weak trend across the state. So the take home message is that, yeah, there, there, there are slightly higher other ownership costs in rural areas, probably regarding fuel and utilities, but those effects are only seen when you take out the property taxes themselves. And when you leave the property taxes in there, they swamp out any effect pushing the other way that you see in rural areas. So really, uh, yeah, there's an effect, but uh, it's masked or disguised or just swamped out by property taxes overall. So that suggests to us that the property tax piece is really the main driver of the trends that we're seeing. So taking this all together, Phil, it seems like for any community that's thinking about building more housing or wants to increase their churn, particularly among seniors that might be in single family homes, it probably would be wise to do a little research on the demand side of things. I am I remember in Hancock, they had this conversation. The EDA was talking about, what if we put up these homes in downtown? And, and people, they went around and started talking to homeowners, uh, particularly that might be a bit older, and asked them, and they'd be like, oh yeah, we would love to have something like that. But there was no actual information related to this is what it's going to do for your costs as a homeowner, right? Like this is how much it's going to cost. And that reality might conjure a different response in terms of, yeah, no, I can't afford that. Or yeah, I would still be willing. I'd be willing to pay that extra to have that type of home. Because um, there is going to be that, right? I just think this overall, this report is just pumping the brakes on like, this isn't just a supply issue. Is that accurate? Yeah, I like the pumping the brakes uh, analogy. I think that's exactly it. It's not slamming on the brakes. It's not saying that it's misguided. It's not saying that it's a, a fool's errand at all. It's just saying that 
there are a lot of factors that might tie into this that uh, are actually geographically really region specific. And so I guess another way of saying it is it's kind of death by a thousand cuts, right? You can look at any one piece of this and say, well, yeah, the property taxes are lower in rural areas. So I guess they're more, I guess if they, I don't know, bought a, or if they're already owning their home outright, they're going to see a much bigger increase if they started renting than they otherwise would. And yeah, I guess if we build in a rural area, there are going to be fewer people who are going to be interested because more of them own their homes. And yeah, I guess that it's true. I mean, there are just a lot of these things that any one of them, you know, if you're sitting in a committee hearing or something, it's like, well, yeah, we can get over that. Yeah, yeah, we can get over that. But when you start adding them all together, the rates of ownership, the costs of ownership, uh, to say nothing of, you know, what you mentioned with the the return of the windfall you'd get for selling your home, the rate that with which you would sell your home, right? Now, we all understand housing is in a crunch everywhere. It's not like out in Mayberry, houses are sitting vacant forever and, you know, in the cities are going up. I mean, it's there's a crunch everywhere, but the rates are different, I think. And so that needs to factor in. If grandma is on a fixed income and that fixed income uh, is going to now just be depleted by an increase in rent because she needs to move to some sort of transitional housing. And obviously we're not talking about like memory care or some like legit healthcare facility uh, or like serious uh, things that would be covered by other means. We're just talking about kind of a transitional, easier living kind of market solution. If that's true, uh, if her house is going to sit on the market for six months, as opposed to six days, that could be the difference in making that decision right now. So there are so many different features to that discussion that all this report wants to do is outline a few of them and put some numbers to them. And like you said, pump the brakes and say, look, that, that might be a good idea. You might have every unit filled in the first week that it's available and people sign in on the dotted line because there is such a need and that could open 10 or 12 or 14 homes in your community and it might be great. However, when you put numbers to it, there are a lot of yellow flags that come up because at any one point you could run into to a factor that slows down your purchase rate or your rent rentier rate just a little bit. And when you start in aggregate, you start looking at them, it could be the difference between crossing the threshold for making it worth it or not. So overall, you know, it's one thing to talk about uh, supply. It's another thing to talk about subsidizing supply. It's another thing to talk about uh, market forces and how they impact rural areas differently. All those things are real. But I guess at the end of the day, things like this might tip the scales just enough that uh, you might get some surprising results. So just be wary about using housing churn as a conduit for uh, the results you want. It might be cheaper to build senior transitional housing per unit. It might be attractive to try to move people through the churn process out of existing standalone homes because they'd be more expensive to build on their own. But there's almost like a coefficient that gets multiplied through there uh, where the probability changes depending on where you are. So you might not get quite the return that you're expecting. And uh, in a tight system or a smaller system with a low critical mass, that small change could make a difference. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. Really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate the analysis as a, you know, a data, data guru myself. Love the approach and we're excited to have the public read it and soak it in. So thanks again. Yeah, I mean, I want to, I want to reach out one more time and say thank you to CRPD for giving me the opportunity. Uh, I hope we're clear. 
I mean, people will have, uh, you know, property tax people will have things to say about that. And that's actually encouraged. Uh, my understanding of the CRPD's mission is to start and have that conversation among stakeholders in rural America or in rural Minnesota. So uh, if this starts a conversation about exactly where those trade-offs are, then I feel like we will we'll have accomplished our goal. Uh, nobody on this uh, recording or anybody is saying that, uh, you know, full stop to anything uh, or that we should uh, seriously reevaluate in principle the entirety of what we're talking about. Just uh, if, if we create a little bit of awareness to some of these issues, I think that's incredible. You've been listening to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Everywhere.